we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Northern Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Well, hello. Happy November. And here we go again. Or if you're just listening for the first time, where have you been? I'm Sam Walker and welcome to episode five of the Northern Power Women podcast. What does an entrepreneur look like? And if you really haven't listened before, then an extra special hello and fear not. You can listen back to all the previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts from and enjoy hours of juicy debates and exclusive interviews with some of the top business minds around. So, this month, you'll hear from Vanda Murray, a woman with a hugely successful portfolio career who talks honestly about things going wrong. I can remember one particular uh, disappointment when, you know, it hurt and I, I had to reassess whether I wanted to stay in that company and carry on or leave. But it took me, you know, I had to dig deep to think, mm, I'm going to, you know, take this one on the chin and prove to them that I can lead. In Ask the Hive this month, a place where you get to hear advice and opinion from a whole range of minds, we talk about whether a single gender can ever represent the whole of society. And if no women are at the table, should a man offer up his seat? It's not a case of you are said sex to step aside. It's who actually should sit in that seat that can do the job, from my point of view, regardless of gender. In our discussion panel, we talk about what an entrepreneur looks like, whether you're a woman or a girl and the uncomfortable subject of sexual harassment at work. I think one of the big problems that we identified was people seeing sexual harassment or even as far as sexual assault happening in front of them and they're not doing anything about it. Maybe they don't know how to confront it or they're just being cowardly. But first, it's been another busy month for Northern Power Women, so let's get an update from our founder, Simone Roche. What a great month. We've reached 10,000 followers on Twitter. So thank you all out there for your social support. Uh, We've had a great meeting at the House of Commons uh, with our Northern Power Women trustee, Baroness Newlove, and the Northern Power House Minister, Jake Berry, who is now an official supporter of the campaign. Watch this space. We've got more news coming soon. We've got three great events coming up this month, including live recording of the podcast in Newcastle at our large organisation winner, Sage UK. Uh, We've got a Reconnect event uh, with Vodafone and together we are hosting uh, an event to support women of thinking of returning to work after a career break. So please do join us and other great organisations to build your network and skills and take your first steps back towards work. Uh, We're also working in conjunction with the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, to bring a networking event to discuss innovation and empowerment in Chester on the 22nd of November all of the events are listed on the website northernpowerwomen.com forward slash events Uh, we'd also like to welcome this month Sharon Sinclair Williams our brand new Northern Power Women ambassador for Teesside so welcome 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 Sharon and don't forget awards entries close on the 13th of November for the 2018 awards We've had an overwhelming response to the nominations with hundreds received. But success is to ensure that we have a comprehensive and inclusive range of entries from every background, every level, every town, every city represented. So we've got every sector and industry uh, to truly celebrate the role models and change making organisations we've got across the Northern Powerhouse. Also want to thank Lancaster University for hosting our live recording of this month's podcast and congratulations on becoming the Times University of the Year. Also big thanks to our brilliant supporter, Northern Power Women Power Lister, Vanda Murray OBE for being involved with the interview this month. If you've got any feedback or would like to leave a review, please do get in touch. Connect at northernpowerwomen.com or follow us on Twitter at North Power Women. Thanks. See you next month. Where does she find the time? And another reminder, that deadline for nominations is November the 13th. 
Now, to this month's discussion panel, and thank you to our brilliant host this month, the University of Lancaster. Well, here we are together again. Thank you so much for coming. We're here at the University of Lancaster in the Management School for episode five of the Northern Power Women podcast panel. And I have three fantastic people who are going to chew over some really meaty, juicy subjects for you today. So please say a big hello to Jane Dalton, MD of Groundswell Innovation and also a Northern Power Women ambassador for Lancaster. Also, Dr. Sophie Alcaled. She she is the lecturer in entrepreneurship with a focus on gender here at Lancaster University and also part of the Northern Power Women Future List for 2017. And Minaz Abedin, he is the, a student here at uh, Lancaster University in politics and international relations and also founder of the marketing agency ACG. A huge thank you to our panellists. <laughs> So without further ado, let's start. And there is one question which this month we simply has to, have to discuss, one topic this month we really did have to discuss. Following news of the allegations of sexual harassment and, of course, rape by the Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, the hashtag MeToo campaign just exploded across social media to really cast a light on sexual assault around all places of work and all institutions, of course. Firstly, I'd quite like, is anyone here in the audience not ever experienced sexual assault in any degree? If you put your hand up if you haven't experienced it. Okay, four people in the audience, quite tentatively <laughs> put their hands up to say they haven't experienced. So the vast majority of people here, in some form, it is something they have experienced. Um, Sophie, let me start with you. How on earth do we start to tackle this, something that is still so endemic across society, it seems? First of all, we need to acknowledge what these women are saying and acknowledge their stories and believe them and support them and encourage more women to step forward and tell them that they're not alone. And I think that's what the Me Too hashtag has done. Uh, we also really need men to step up. We need men to come forward and to support women when they see it happening. Uh, we have to understand as well that sexual harassment is, has a, a, a large spectrum. And I think a lot of women feel that unless they've been physically attacked or assaulted, uh, that they need to just suck it up and accept it as part of the patriarchy that's been going on since time began. Uh, so we need to have more men step forward who see everyday sexism taking place, whether it's in the office, in the boardroom, whether it's in the street, whether it's on the subway. Um, and I think that with those two things coming together, we should be able to make some changes. But, Jane, we often hear, don't we, and, and I remember there was a response from the journalist Sarah Vine on this when one of my colleagues at the BBC actually talked about being propositioned by a male editor very early into her career uh, over dinner. He, he sort of lunged towards her and said he couldn't stop thinking about her. He is obsessed with her. This is a married, much older man. And Sarah Vine wrote, sorry, ladies, you know, an, an embarrassing, fumbling uh, proposition over dinner is not sexual assault. Get over it. I mean, there is this almost backlash that if somebody propositions you, that's, that's not harassment. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's a very difficult area to tackle. I love the way that Ashley Judd talked about it in a, in a recent Times interview, actually. She talked about the combination of shame and pride that she felt of having gone through this experience and saying that um, the shame was because she didn't come forward at the time that she perhaps wasn't as forthright as she wanted to be in, in rebuffing these alleged advances, um, but also the pride that she managed to come up with a one-liner, which it did, it did enough to stop him in his tracks, to say, you know, OK, when, I'm, when I win an Oscar from one of your films, then we can have this conversation, is what she reportedly said. And I think uh, the thing that sticks out for me is, is her, her quote about this, which is, uh, we all do the best we can, and our best is good enough. And that it's not about feeling uh, like... Uh, well, it's not actually that much of a big deal. Or, you know, you feel how you feel when something like that happens. It's your personal reaction. And I don't think anybody else can really stand in judgment to say, well, that was or was not sexual mm. harassment. Mm. Minaz, is sexual harassment something you have noticed, not just around the campus here at, at Lancaster University, but generally in life? Have you seen those moments of tension where women have felt uncomfortable? Um, yes. The, the Me Too campaign came 
at a coincidental time as well, whilst the university is going through an overhaul right now, bringing sexual harassment and sexual assault to the forefront of the welfare campaigns across the colleges. It's very, very apparent that sexual harassment and sexual assault is something which is a problem across the university, and I can imagine it will be the same across campuses in the UK. I think one of the big problems that we identified was the bystander problem, and it was people kind of overseeing or seeing sexual harassment or even as far as sexual assault happening in front of them, may that be in clubs or in everyday life, and they're not doing anything about it. And they may know it's wrong, but maybe they don't know how to confront it or they're just being cowardly. I mean, that's my personal opinion in that sense as well, because it is cowardly to not do something about it. But it's also a very uncomfortable situation for people. And, and it's that education around it, which is what we're trying to focus on at the university. And of course, it's a problem, but it's also how do we deal with it? So I think the Me Too campaign, for example, came at a brilliant time in bringing education to the forefront and sharing those experiences and making sexual harassment and sexual assault not just something which is a physical uh, problem, but also a mental and a virtual problem as well. How do you feel about um, the debate that often rages around women's responsibility for sexual assault, i.e. alcohol a woman might have drunk or clothes that she is wearing? And we, we still see in 2017 people saying, well, if you're going to dress like that, what do you expect? I'm really interested to hear from you as a, as a man how you feel about that because my husband always says it's almost suggesting that as men we can't control ourselves and he says he finds that really insulting as a man that there'd be this suggestion that if you dress like that, well, I'm sorry, we are, but mere mortals, we can't help ourselves. Are you insulted as a man to, to have, hear that argument? I'm in, I am insulted. I don't want to swear on this podcast either. It's absolute crap that a woman can't dress how she likes, she can't act how she likes on the dependency that a man might act a certain way. And men do. It is, a, it is a, a laddish culture to do, and it's completely inappropriate, completely wrong, and it's something which I'm horrified by. That happens to this day. For me, I'm, I'm not insulted. I, I'm compassionate to women who uh, feel that way because it is, it is a problem, and if we kind of mm. cower away from a problem and don't face it front on, then it's always going to be a problem. However, to imply that men feel that way, that women shouldn't dress in a certain way, shouldn't act a certain way, shouldn't drink a certain amount is preposterous. I have to say, I love the way that the Tracy Ullman show handled that very issue about, uh, and I think you almost, humour is a great way of getting round uh, very contentious debates, uh, and I love the way that the, the sketch she, she, she put together with her team did that, with, you know, the idea of a, a well-dressed professional man, obviously wealthy, uh, who got mugged. And the, so the, the sketch is about him being interviewed in a police station and two sort of head shaking slightly, well, you know, police women saying, do you think that perhaps you should have dressed differently, sir? Do you think that perhaps it was a little bit provocative that maybe somebody could see your wallet poking out of your pocket? Do you think you might have been something that you would have wanted to do differently? I love the fact that it put men into that position to look at it from people's a different perspective and to... to assess what they really thought about it if it had been them. Do continue the conversation. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think about anything we discuss here in the Northern Power Women podcast. You can find us, uh, find us on Twitter at North Power Women. Now, last month... And there was a world celebration, of course, of the International Day of the Girl. And this sparked a whole new debate. And in fact, uh, the Northern Power Women founder, Simone Roche, got involved in one of these debates. And it was around the term girl being used uh, around women. Are you offended or do you find it offensive that women, grown adults, are referred to quite regularly in business, especially in office environments, as girls? Sophie. Uh, I think that the term girl needs to always be understood within the context of wh where it's said and by who and how it's used. So the word girl doesn't offend me, but if someone says, or if a man says, and then he threw like a girl, then that's insulting. If he says that he cried like a girl, then again, that's insulting, and I wouldn't accept it in that context. I also wouldn't like my colleagues to refer to me as a girl. 
because there's this sort of a uh, inf- infantilizing of of uh, of uh, a woman's role and and, and to, to describe it quite belittling quite patronizing showing a lack of experience losing power in their position so uh, so from so it really depends on the context and the context of this uh, campaign uh, it saddens me if some women felt that it was offensive uh, the point of the campaign was to empower girls before during and after conflict it was discussing issues around gender-based violence it was looking at physical violence and really focusing as well on child marriage which is uh, a massive problem that's taking place now especially in uh, refugee communities so at the moment the, there's a massive rise in the number of child brides uh, Syrian girls aged between 13 and 17 uh, in the refugee camps in Syria, in in Lebanon, in Jordan. Uh, So that's what this campaign was about. And these are girls. These are not women. These are young girls. Um, And I I think the latest figures show that 44% of marriages that have taken place in that region, uh, the girls have been between the ages of 13 and 17. So from that perspective, we shouldn't start focusing on the language. We shouldn't start focusing um, on whether the word girl offends a woman at work. We should focus more on the context of what it's used and the context of of this UN campaign. Talking about the... uh the issue of women being referred to as girls. There was an MP fairly recently who appeared on the Today programme talking about the girls in his office and how he loved the girls he worked with. And these were all women in their 50s plus. And he got into some hot water over this. And as ever, both sides of the debate raged. And one of the self-proclaimed girls from the office actually appeared on national radio and said, I'm I'm 55, so I don't care. We are the girls in the office. And I'm going to bring Minazan on this because sometimes do you... Do you think, well, I, I don't know if I'm putting a foot wrong here or not? I s- stay away from the word girl. <laughs> Even with my little sister, I call her a lady or a woman. Um, but I've, I, funnily enough, I had this debate as well. There was a girls' education forum in London, and it was what Sophie was saying as well. It's it's focusing on a particular issue. Mm. I mean, using the w- word girl in a certain context is completely inappropriate especially if they are a lady or a, or a woman if, even if that grown woman doesn't mind being referred to as a girl it's setting a standard and that standard shouldn't be set so I can swear at someone if they'll be alright with it but it doesn't make that swear word okay or what that, that meaning towards that, that word means it's just inappropriate in the same way that it's becoming more and more apparent they shouldn't use hey guys for example or collective as boys or laddish like that all excuses certain parts of behaviour and using the word girl excuses the fact that you're you're undermining uh, a, a woman and that's just inappropriate. Jane, what are your views on this? Um, I just love terms like girl power, this girl can. I think you can uh, ascribe your own meaning to words just because uh, you've got past experiences that you're bringing into a particular word that, that d- help you to, to ascribe a certain meaning to it. That, I think that's up to the individual, that's fine. But any uh, positive or negative word can be used with great power. You know, suffragette was, was an insult to start with and that, that where that got us, pretty, pretty good progress. So I think uh, it's about, for me, using words positively rather than haranguing people for using words negatively. The, the focus of attention is all wrong uh, in the debate for me. Who here in the audience today uh, would be offended if they were called a girl? Nobody, it seems. Not even the men in the audience. So, um, OK, do you want to say something, Manaz? Yeah. Um, I think the thing about this whole debate as well is in the people in certain positions are using the words. I mean, if you're amongst a group of friends and you use certain bantuous language then that's within your group but these are role models towards towards our society and it's making certain characteristics or behaviors the norm and that's i I don't think that's correct Yes, Sophie. I think it's uh, definitely uh, an age thing as well. I think a lot of men feel like they don't want to say to a woman in her 20s or 30s, they don't want to call her a woman because she wants to feel young as well. And it's that kind of uh, trying to make her feel young. But in a way, it's actually quite patronising. And uh, I think a lot of the... If the woman woman accepts it, then that again goes back to what we've been talking about in terms of context. So if you want to be called a girl, then so be it. But it shouldn't have to start that way. And it certainly shouldn't happen in a professional space or at work. 
Okay, do continue the conversation as ever. You can find us on Twitter at North Power Women. Now, we're sat here, of course, in Lancaster University. We're in the management school. And our final discussion today is about the business world. And as the business world and the working world changes just so dramatically, it seems month by month at the moment, is there, do you believe, enough emphasis or, in fact, enough interest amongst students, both at university and at school, in entrepreneurship? Now, as a man who is, in, in fact, a student and has already set up his own marketing agency, um, what's your view on that, Manaz? Uh No. Absolutely not. I was never, ever taught how to be an entrepreneur, how to set up a business. And when I was setting up my own enterprise with my partners, we had to find the resources ourselves. We had to speak to mentors. We had to go and seek out individuals like Simone, for example, and speak to them about how to create something. The schools, education, I was never, ever taught anything about entrepreneurship. Um, I did economics at school. I did business studies at school. I did everything which should have tailored me towards that kind of that skill range but no mm. uh, no I don't not at all uh, so for you you're of course a lecturer here at Lancaster University in entrepreneurship do you agree with Manaz that it seems that schools just aren't tackling this issue at all it is actually quite disappointing to see that, that that's something that's happening because uh, once the students come to university and they do select their degrees in uh, sort of mainstream subjects such as economic or finance or uh, marketing and they do some of the modules on our entrepreneurship degree, they actually fall in love with the course and what it's about and they wish that they'd done it earlier or that they'd learned more about it at school. Um, so yeah, I think that's something that that is that needs to be more. There needs to be more focus in schools on on encouraging people or encouraging their students not to become entrepreneurs as such, but to think more entrepreneurially, mm. to think more outside the box, to get them ready to be in a job where they can be more malleable, where they can do some marketing, some finance, uh, some accounts, um, and be able to uh, build networks, to think outside the box to be more creative to believe in themselves more uh, so we need to start doing that a bit more from schools but in terms of a gendered perspective um, every year every single year before I start teaching my course I ask the students to pull up a picture on their iPhones of a, of a mentor or a um, entrepreneur who they look up to who's an idol and every year I would say way over 90 to 95 percent of my class bring up a picture of a man and last year I was teaching an entrepreneurial learning course and out of 45 students, 42 students brought up a picture of a man and three of them brought up a picture of a woman and one was her mum, one was her grandma, one was her auntie. So I think we also have issues in the media as well of how we portray the entrepreneur as somebody incredibly masculine, heroic, male, an individual. Um, and then we put women into these other boxes and entrepreneurs, just not one of them. So that's something as well that they need to tackle in schools. Well, that's interesting because I, I mentioned actually before we started this discussion about seeing uh, an ad on Twitter for a large uh, financial institution with a picture of a, a woman with a baby, holding a baby with a laptop in front of her. And it said, are you a mumpreneur? It seems, Jane, you can't be an entrepreneur if you're a mother. You have to be a mumpreneur. I'm not even sure what that is. No, neither am I, actually. I don't really know what they mean by that word. Is it just because we're juggling everything? Uh, being a successful mum, running your own business, uh, it's something I do. Uh, you know, I've got two children. I have my own business. Um, so what? Why does that make me any different from anybody else with a family who's running their own business? I don't, I don't really get that. Uh, especially the, the kind of hackneyed images, as you say, the stock photos that come out around such campaigns. So to me, it's about, you know, what you need more than anything about having your own business. Is, is, is more than anything resilience um, and being able to learn that from an early age in whatever context at school or whatever in your, in, in your personal life is extremely important and I don't think it's necessarily about having you know business learning um, it, it goes really nice alongside that when I did my MBA there was a, a lecturer standing there saying look if, you've, if you want to be an entrepreneur you shouldn't be here this is not 
the place because this is not teaching you to run your own thing it's teaching you how to operate in a corporate sphere and I think that's actually something I've seen is very different at Lancaster because there's a very specific teaching of what it means to be a business owner to be an entrepreneur whether that's on your own part of a team or part of a very large organization it's, it's, it's almost much easier to be an entrepreneur on your own than it is in a corporate atmosphere because you have to sort of toe the line in a corporate thing. So I'm not a big fan of the, the term mumpreneur, although I probably technically am one. But, um, you know, I think uh, it, it's for everybody to assign their own definitions to their, to their roles, isn't it, really? So where did, you, where did you get that first spark from? Where did you get that drive from? And Minaz was saying at school it never, ever occurred to him um, to go into his own business. And then when he decided to, he had to find everything out on his own. What for you sparked and went, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to do this on my own? Uh, I think it was a bit odd. I, quite, I knew quite early, I, th I think I knew by about 18, 21, that I wanted to have my own business. It was just one of those things like writing a book. I just wasn't quite sure what it was about yet and what I wanted to have a business, you know, what, what the subject matter was going to be. Um, so it took me a long time to get there. And actually, ironically, it was, it was becoming a parent that made me think, do you know what? This is, this is something I need to do. I want to get back control of my work life. I want to be there for my children. So uh, I'm going to construct a working environment that suits me. And, and that, for me, meant being an entrepreneur rather than constantly groveling to a boss to say, look, I'm really sorry, but I want to be at that play. I want to be at this, this meeting, PTA meeting, whatever it might be. I want an active role in, in all my roles in society, not just as a business owner. Sophie, what's the one thing do you think we could do for the next generation to encourage them that being an entrepreneur is something that is available to them? I think it's really important to stress that anybody can be an entrepreneur, uh, regardless of your background, regardless of your gender, your sexual orientation, your nationality, your ethnicity. So that would be something that I would always encourage. But I would also encourage my students to think carefully about how they want to use it to be entrepreneurs um, that are working for their community communities that are doing things to improve things in their societies to be a sustainable um, to set up sustainable businesses um, so that would be more the angle that I would come from all of you, thank you so much for coming today. It's been a pleasure to speak to all of you. Do continue the conversation amongst your own networks and your places of work, amongst your colleagues. And, of course, we'd love to hear as well what you have to say on Twitter. You can always find us at North Power Women. Please give a huge Lancaster University round of applause then to the wonderful Minaz Abedin, to Dr Sophie Al-Khaled, and also to Jane Dalton. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks again to everyone who came along to be part of the audience. Next month, we're in Newcastle. We would love you to join us. Do head to northernpowerwomen.com for more details. Now, it is time to delve into the mind of an individual who lives with real purpose and hear about the decisions and challenges that they faced in their career. This month, I spoke to one of the women who made up the Northern Power Women Power List, Vanda Murray, OBE. She's a woman who has had a rich and varied career. And I started off by asking her, as an individual who has so many jobs, if I met her at a party, what would she tell me that she did for a living? That's a good question, and my children ask me that as well. I ask questions for a living. So I sit on boards as an independent director, commonly called a non-exec, and um, typically you give two days a month to a particular company. You're there to represent shareholders, to challenge management, and to make sure the company's going in the right direction, but mainly to ask questions, hopefully the right ones. So some years ago, I, I made a decision to, to move to a portfolio career rather than have just one job. So I sit on several boards as, as a non-executive director, including um, I've got three quoted companies and Manchester Airport. And then I do some unpaid or pro bono work in Manchester, which I love as well. How do you keep all those plates spinning? Well, when I was a full-time executive, I was um, chief executive of a, a company that, that since been, well, was bought by an American group, but I was uh, chief exec of a PLC called Blick. And we had nine companies across four continents. And really, you get used to working with a particular management team on their issues 
on that day and then another day you can be working with another team and my non-exec life is very similar to that uh, happily not quite as many companies but um, hopefully you're able to give them that independent perspective and objectivity because you're not in the mire day to day and I love what I do I think you know work at a, a high level with, with you know the, the senior team focusing on the key issues facing their business so yeah I, I, uh, I, I really enjoy my work. Looking back to when you were uh, towards the beginning of your career, to where you are now, it's hard to almost join up those dots and see where you get from one place to the other. Because as you said, you work across a range of so many different companies now. And someone might be listening to this and thinking, wow, that sounds really attractive. How on earth do you get to that point? I mean, looking back to when you were starting out, what ambitions did you have? Did you always want to work across a lot of different sectors? No, no, I didn't really figure at all. I just wanted to do well in my job. And I would say that to anyone. I think the prerequisite for doing what I do would be excel in your day job, you know, make a success of whatever it is you're doing, um, commit to lifetime learning, commit to giving something back in your community or your, your business sector because you always get uh, rewarded, I think, 10 times over for, for that type of work. So I've always focused on my day job, given it my all, and I've always done extra things um, you know, a whole range of, of pro bono and, and charity work. And, and I think that really broadened my experience. And it was something I've, I've, all, I've done all the way through my career. I've always done you know, the, the extra things. I've always volunteered for doing that talk or, or leading that project. And, and, and I think that, again, pays back over time. It broadens your experience. It makes you more visible um, and you're less nervous about standing up and, and talking to peers or, you know, or, or other groups. And, and I, yeah, I think it's about putting yourself out there, not being, not being shy, but you know, just being confident in your own abilities and always learning and always open to learning. And I think that's that's a lesson for all of us. I continue to go on courses. I continue to learn new things. Um, and there's you know, there's always more to do. And I, I think the main thing is to work with good people and, and enjoy your work. Where did you start out? So I was a, a graduate trainee with ICI. And uh, so I started here in Manchester um, for the organics division um, in marketing roles. And then early in my career, I moved a couple of times and I think that, again, broadened my experience. I got used to working in different sectors and, 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 and changing. And it was a sort of way of promoting myself. I'd move to the next job and get a promotion and then the next job. And then in my 30s, I settled down and I had a very long period working for one group. And within that group, um, I, I got more and more responsibility till I ended up on the, the board and then became chief executive of it, uh, which was a, a marvellous opportunity. I had to move south to do it. Sometimes you have to put yourself out and your family to get to take those jobs. Uh, made a success of that. Um, and then, as I said, mid-career, um, I, I moved into a portfolio type working. You mentioned your family. There's been lots of discussions during the panels of the Northern Power Women podcast where people have talked about how to plan for a family when you're when you you have a career that's very important to you. You talk about having to physically move your family for your career. How how have you managed to balance both? What's your what's your support network you have around you? There's never any one right answer to this question. I think that the, the point is you must plan and you must get the extra help and the extra support that you need. One time I was a cottage industry. I had a nanny, a cleaner, a gardener. You know, it just went on. I just needed more help and more, and I couldn't do it alone. Um, my partner, that was very important. You know, we managed it together. So the, the point is to plan it. You don't leave it to chance think about the support that you need for you and your family and make sure you get that help and get that help in the home as well it can be hard to ask for help can't it it can and hard sometimes to realize that you simply can't do it on your own it's impossible you cannot do it on your own you need help and even now i you now have i have a you know a good support network and i, I don't even work full time but i realized long ago i wanted to use my time in the the way i wanted to use it particularly in my leisure time and and therefore i'm very happy to to pay for help in the house 
I know there's a big emphasis at the moment on on returnships, women who spend time out of work, whether it's to do with starting a family, whether it's to do with deciding to, to take a different career path for the world. But going back into the world of work can be a really challenging time. How did you deal with that? I kept in touch with the business all the way through. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a senior role, so my secretary would come to the house and I would. I didn't really leave. Whilst I was, work, I, I was at home, I was still working. And so I did something every day. So I kept in touch. I did take physically the time off, but I was still keeping in touch with what was going on. And I think for most people, whatever level, you need to find some way of keeping in touch with the business, whether that's going in for half a day a month or, you know, keep having some email contact. I would say don't just leave. Have some way of keeping up. I, I've counseled lots of women on this subject and many of them have taken the advice and said, just going in, for a couple of hours once a month over my maternity made going back so much easier because I sort of knew what was going on. And I think that yeah, it's a good lesson for us all. As you just talked through your career path and how you started out in one place and slowly moved and, and moved up and moved out, you sound like someone who for networking has been really, really important. Would, would you agree? Yeah, I don't think I realised how important it was early on in my career. It's only later on that I realised that networking was fun and you could get um, to meet brilliant people, share experiences, stories, share stories about things that went badly as well as things that went well and learn from each other, um, men and women. And so I've learned that it's important to keep in touch with people around you, people in different industries, but those perhaps going through what what you're going through or maybe those that have already done it. So I enjoy networking and I would say to anyone, you know, when you have to walk into that room all on your own, don't be frightened. If you are frightened, then get a guest list ahead of time. Look down the list and find a couple of people you actually want to talk to and go and talk to them because there's always someone of interest there. And most people are very friendly. And once you start doing the, you know, putting yourself out there, you'll find that the rewards are huge personally and professionally. So in Manchester, I, I can probably get in touch with anyone I like through one or two people that I know that you always know somebody who knows somebody. And that can be enormously helpful when you want a bit of support for yourself or someone else, because we're a community after all. Um, and I think whatever area you work in, you, sh you should consider that, you know, your, your community of, of peers and friends and colleagues. And I, as I say, if someone asks me for help, I, I'm always happy to, to do whatever I can. And most people are exactly the same. So now Networking is, is a fun but important part of your working life. Have you ever felt stuck in your career and thought, I do not know where to go next or how to get to where I want to go? Early on in my career, yes. And I think that's why I moved a few times in my 20s, because I thought I'm not making the progress that I want to. Perhaps I need to do something. And managing your career is something you, we should each take responsibility for. No one's going to manage your career for you. So yes, if you find that you're not making the progress, you need to ask yourself why. Sometimes it's helpful to talk to a mentor um, or, or a sponsor in, inside the business or an external mentor and just talk through what's going on and think, Is am I still getting enough out? of this role or would it be helpful if I moved either internally or externally so yes taking time every now and again to to reassess where you are and think through your next moves I think that's really important how many mentors and sponsors did you work with and how did you find them um probably Mentoring is something that's much more common now than when I was younger. But I think all of us, you know, whether you look back to school and think, actually, there's a really great teacher that encouraged and supported me. I had one boss that I worked for who was just brilliant, encouraged and supported me to push myself. So he he was probably as, as near as I would I came to having a mentor and, and we're still in touch. But I think now it's much more formal. People are looking for a mentor. I mentor several uh, women and I've mentored men. Um, and it, it's becoming much more common, which mm -hmm. is a great thing. How have you coped if you have come across an obstacle? Talk me through the process that you have of working around that obstacle, working through it. 
Um, I think career-wise, it's important to stay objective and not get too emotionally invested in a problem. So, yes, take a step back, assess it coolly, professionally, work out what can be done. Sometimes that's going to talk to an individual. Sometimes it's going to be something around getting extra support or professional help if you need it. I think it's it's important to take a step back, get some independent thought either by yourself or, or, or with someone else and, and attack it logically because there's always a way out. And there's always a way of overcoming an obstacle. But sometimes when you're thicker, in the thick of it, you can't see it. So it's important to step back and reassess and then go forward once you're clear on how to tackle it. We talk so often about mistakes and we're so scared to make mistakes as individuals and in our, in our personal lives and in our business lives. How do you deal with a staff member who's made a big mistake? Because quite often it's it's staff members are frightened to come forward to their superiors and say, this is what's happened. How do you deal with that? I think in your working life, it's important to cultivate a no blame culture. And if you do that, people feel able to hold their hands up. Everyone makes mistakes. If you can get a culture where people admit to it quickly, then you're much more able to sort it out quickly. And um, sometimes... It, it it's very difficult if the individual can't get over that mistake and feels they have to go. That's obviously unfortunate. I would always try and work with someone to resolve the issue together to, to work through it and to find a way through it. And that no blame culture will help them get over it because people don't make mistakes on purpose. Uh, if they have made a mistake, I think it's important for them and for everyone around them to see that you're dealing with it quickly and and fairly. Um, and treating that individual well uh, and trying to, 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 to help them through it and help the business through it. How have you personally, Vanda, dealt with professional disappointment? Because we, we've all had times when we've been working towards a goal and it hasn't come to pass. And that can be really hard to overcome. Perhaps we failed. How have you dealt with that? How have you moved on? Um, yeah, I can think of a couple of times when things haven't gone my way. I think at that moment, it, it's often good just to step back. I mean, I can remember one particular uh, disappointment when, you know, it hurt. And I, I had to reassess whether I wanted to stay in that company and carry on and and work in a different way, take on a different role or leave. And had you been had you been overlooked for something? Yes, I'd been overlooked for a promotion when I absolutely believed I should have got it. So um, I ended up taking on a different role. Um, actually, I took on exporting. I remember I didn't get the UK sales team. So I, I took on a, an exporting role and, and made a success of the, the export sales um, and came back into the business with that success under my belt, so to speak. And a year later, I did get the promotion I wanted. But it took me, you know, I had to dig deep to think, mm, I'm going to you know, take this one on the chin and prove to them that I can lead the sales. I might not be leading it in the UK, but I'll go and grab some export business and, and really, you know, show the, the company what I can do. So, but it, it, you know, it took some time for me to realize that was the way through for this particular issue. Um, and it was, it was quite good for me, really. <laughs> so what did you learn from it? Well, certainly I learned that I had a a degree of resilience. And I think in business and in, you know, your personal life, being resilient, being able to cope with setbacks, because, you know, not everything goes our way in, in our personal life either sometimes. Learning about resilience, learning that you can work through problems, that there is often another way. Um, I think, it, yeah, it, it's actually really good for you. Talking of your personal life, do you think it's really important to keep your personal life and your business life completely separate? I know there's been some discussion recently that perhaps we should see the person behind the business deal, the person behind the company contact that we have. What are your thoughts on that? Should we be more mindful of the fact that people have other lives outside of business? Or do you believe actually, no, we should keep them in their separate camps and that's how both things function best? Hmm, I've always wanted to understand what's going on in the lives of the people I work with. If they're having a tough time at home, obviously it's going to affect their work. So no, I like to get to know the people that I work with who work for me um, and and understand the things that are affecting them. Um, 
I've always encouraged, you know, bring your son or your daughter to work every now and again. Um, I've quite liked events where partners are included. So whilst you don't want to bring your personal life into work every day, of course, we're all affected by what happens. So understanding that, I once worked with someone who was clearly going through about a postnatal depression and sitting down and talking to them helped them enormously. So no, I think you have to understand what's going on in, in someone's personal life. But yes, we're there to do a job and we have to to separate personal and professional to do that job. But undoubtedly, we're all impacted by what happens at home. So yeah, I'd, I'd go for a, a compromise position on that. I think it's important to support your staff and, and support the people around you as much as you can. But yes, there's a balance. We've, we've got to go to work and do our jobs as well. Working as you do across so many different companies, across so many different sectors at a, a really high, at a really senior level, do you think... In business, men and women communicate differently. Um, Generalisations are always difficult, aren't they? But on the whole, yes. Uh, and I can think of clear examples where that is not the case with some great male communicators and some poor female ones. But on the whole, men and women do tend to have slightly different styles. And that's why groups of men and women actually work very well together and that's why I'm a proponent of diversity on boards because getting a group of men and women together I think you get better decisions because we have slightly different perspectives and life experiences but on the whole yes I think women are probably better communicators Um, but as you get to the top of organisations on the whole men have learned how to deal with that so I can think of men who are great at it and and women who aren't but Yes, women should be conscious of their own strengths and weaknesses, just as men should. And we should all try and work on, you know, being a rounded individual and and, and the best manager we possibly can be. Looking back on your career, is there anything you do differently? Uh, I don't think so. Everything I look back on now, I think, well, you know, that even if I'd had a sideways move, it was it was beneficial because I learned something. No, I've really enjoyed my career. I feel really fortunate to have worked with and for some great people and had life experiences that I would never have had had I not done the jobs I've done. I've travelled the world and worked with great people. And the more I learn, the more I realise I've got to learn. So I'm at a, a happy place. I've had a great career. I like to share that with others and encourage women in particular to to be more ambitious and be more confident in their own abilities. Uh, I'd love to see more women at senior levels in the workplace doing what I've done. But no, I I, I don't regret anything and I, I wouldn't really have done anything differently. Many thanks to the very busy Vanda Murray. If there's a man or a woman that you'd love to hear on this podcast, please just get in touch. You can tweet us at North Power Women or email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Thank you. So, before we bring the November episode to a close, it's time to find out your response to this month's Ask the Hive question, which came from Fiona. I'm Fiona Armstrong-Gibbs. In the new devolution deal, the Liverpool City region is made up entirely of men. There's no women to represent regions like St Helens, Halton and the Wirral. Should some of those male representatives step aside and allow a woman to take their seat? Hi, I'm Gemma Gardner. I think that the men should step aside only if the woman is capable to fill that role. It's not a case of you are said sex to step aside. It's who actually should sit in that seat that can do the job, from my point of view, regardless of gender. I'm Jane Binion, and um, a region can't be represented just by one group. I don't know if the men are all white. Uh, It doesn't say anything about that. But a group has to be reflective of their community. If any women live in Liverpool, I think it would probably be useful that there are women on the group. And whoever is chair, whoever is pulling that group together, should be mindful of the community they're representing and who they're pulling together to represent that. Happens all the time. Conferences, all sorts. All white panel, Northern Powerhouse, all white male panel, and no one noticed. The people pulling it together didn't even notice. 
and they have to, they have to be more mindful if they think they're representing a community. Hello, David Fizzik here. In answer to the question about some of the male representatives standing down, the unequivocal answer is yes, with the one proviso that it is talent that must be reason A leaves and female B arrives. The need of the city to be well administered for its citizens today and for the future is paramount. In terms of talent, we need to assess skills, knowledge, experience and, most of all, behaviour. Do prospective new representatives possess a clear sense of purpose and direction without being ideologically dogmatic? Are they curring individuals, not in a pacific manner, but in a tough love manner? While diversity covers many physical factors, e.g. gender and race, true diversity must embrace the psychological factors as well. A council made up entirely of visionaries or planners in terms of their approach to thinking about the world or completing tasks, or one made up of extroverts or introverts, is unbalanced. All these different styles need to be representative and respected. Liverpool has a great history of highly reputable female politicians. Consider Bessie Braddock and Lady Margaret Symey. Where are their successors now? Who in the pantheon of NPW role models can follow in these great ladies' footsteps? I love that um, Tabitha Morton's response to having having run for Liverpool mayor was to follow that up with not kind of just skulking around, licking her wounds, trying to find the the next route into power, but it was to take the power she she got she won from the debates and turn that into positive change. So she's already working on the policy change. She's already doing things like rescuing rape crisis centres that would have otherwise gone under. You know that was just because she put her head over the parapet and said, yeah, okay, well I'll stand for something. It's not about power for me it's about making things happen whoever's in power and I think that for me is a really valuable way of, of looking at politics and and changing the game that that most people wouldn't do because it's all about me and it's about ego and that 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 for me is very different I think if if the case is that those people have been nominated the the issue is actually at a, a grassroots level rather than on high because presumably the people at the top can't then do anything about the people who've been nominated. Um, so, you know, we see in recruitment in HR, you have positive di diversity statements, uh, things like that. Something somebody needs to be tackling it head on. But going back to the grassroots, and that's a, a far wider social sort of movement than than people at the top think it needs to come from the top and from the bottom and all together. Yeah. As ever, terrific insight from the Northern Power Women Hive. If you've got a question you'd like to ask, then we'd love to hear from you. Just get in touch. Email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Now, I have a feeling you may well have something to say on this month's question, which comes from Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon, and I've got a question for Ask the Hive. As one half of a Northern Power Women Future Leader couple... I want to know whether you think it is possible to have two highly successful careers and children within one family. So what do you reckon? What's your answer to Sharon's question? Please do get in touch with your thoughts and experiences and then either send a voice memo to podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. You can record that on your smartphone and your little voice memo app or you can open up WhatsApp on your phone. Add the Northern Power Women podcast on 07928. 387712. That's 07928 387712. And you can send us your thoughts that way as well. If you need those details again, you can find all the information you need online at northernpowerwomen.com. So there we have it. Another month of great discussion, advice, and experience all wrapped up. Please do leave us a rating wherever you get your podcast from. And if you could spread the word about us, tell your friends, your colleagues, the person behind you in the line at the post office, we'd really appreciate your help. The next episode arrives for you on December the 3rd. Until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On Media production for Northern Power Women. Northern Power Women.